You've entered the Prosperity Dimension. A dimension of sci-fi adventure. A dimension of small biz excitement. A dimension where Nicole Fendi shows you how to build your profits and have a swashbuckling good time. And now, here's Nicole Fendi. Welcome back to the Prosperity Dimension podcast. I'm Nicole Fendi, your host. Today, we are joined by Joe Steck. And Joe is a data scientist by day. So, of course, I love him, numbers. And he's a science fiction editor by night, kind of his own alter ego. We're really excited to welcome Joe to the show and learn a bit about what's it like to have your own science fiction magazine, some of his journeys, and what does he love? Because I tell you, his favorite book I haven't read. So we're going to get into that as well. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks. I am very happy to be here talking with you. Well, let's first start. You have a new science fiction magazine called Compelling Science Fiction. What inspired you to create your own magazine? Well, I have been interested in science fiction ever since I was very, very small. I actually tried my hand writing some science fiction while I was in college. I was not particularly good at it. I still enjoyed reading it and talking about it. And the one thing that I was the most interested in science fiction for was the interesting extrapolations based in science. Mm -hmm. And so there's several types of science fiction. Some of them are very fantasy-like. Some of them are based in political intrigue. There's various types of science fiction, but the stuff that I was really interested in was the stuff that was very plausible. Mm -hmm. And that stuff doesn't get written quite as often as all the others, just because it's more difficult to write. You have to have a background in either science or engineering to really convince someone that your story is plausible. So I decided I've become a little bit more financially capable of supporting that type of art. And I started compelling science fiction to support it. I love that. And for our listeners to know, there's a couple different ways we can take this. But I first want to point out, I first came across Joe because he does a Patreon campaign. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon campaign It's under compelling is the name. I saw I was doing just a Patreon search for science fiction. And I came across the magazine and went, oh, my God, for all the reasons you just listed, Joe, I really enjoy science fiction that does do that extrapolation because to me, the original science fiction, it was written by scientists. They really were trying to extrapolate and they were looking at what if it went this way and what if it went that way. And while I enjoy some of the other types as well, I miss that because we don't see as much of that exploration, really looking at what could be if this happened, then what? Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, in my book, The Prosperity Dimension, I did a lot of research to try to bring that. So, for example, one of the characters in my book communicates through scent. And that's actually based in scientific fact that mm. there are creatures like ants, for example. Ants communicate almost wholly through scent. And so they've done studies, for example, where they'll take an ant that's not dead and they'll paint him with the dead scent whatever that is. Yeah. I don't know what a dead ant <laughs> smells like. <laughs> but they'll paint the ant with the 
is dead scent, and they'll stick the ant in the dead ant pile, I guess dead ant cemetery, whatever. And I'm joking, but really, they've done research around this. And of course, the ant isn't dead. It will try to leave. But the other ants keep smelling dead ant. And even though the ant is moving, they keep putting it back in the dead ant pile. (laughs) Because they communicate by scent. And so I'm like, what if we had a character in the book that communicated by scent, which is the Uh only one of our five senses that bypasses the thinking brain? Yeah, there's quite a few animals that have some type of pheromone communication. Yeah, and so I love this. I love the idea of asking the what if and trying to extrapolate beyond. When flip phones were big, being a diehard Star Trek fan, we all know where the original flip phone idea came from, right? (laughs) Communicators. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So how do you find, or how do they find you, these science fiction writers that are, you know, the hard science science fiction writers? Well, the first set of submissions that I received were mostly through Hacker News. If you haven't heard of it, it's a news aggregation site that's actually a arm of Y Combinator, which is a startup incubator or accelerator. I'm not sure which of those they prefer to be called, but Mm -hmm. it's out in California and they've accelerated quite a few of the larger unicorn startups in the Valley recently. So my post actually hit the top slot on Hacker News for a short period of time. And that gave me a pretty big boost. I think that was, there was probably 12,000 people who came to the site due to that. Wow. And so those people, the people that read that site generally are very competent people, whether it be in business or engineering. And so I got some good submissions from them. And then there are quite a few submission sites that track various magazines that pay professional rates. And so I just got in contact with them. Rallan.com is a big one. And then when you say you're paying professional rates, then people generally find you. So... Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because that's something near and dear to my heart. Obviously, I'm talking about business profit, and a lot of times it's easy, especially for writers, to feel almost like they have to give it away, right? To get a following, to get noticed, to, which I'm vehemently against. And not that, you know, yeah, I have my own blog, and I'll write my blog, and I'll give away yeah. a free chapter of my book so that people will buy the book. But unfortunately, I think in today's content-heavy world, a lot of people are saying they're asked to write for exposure. And I've got to say really quick, I'm going to ask you a question, but first I would like to mm-hmm. say, whenever someone asks you to write for exposure, this is to the audience, not to you, Joe, because I know you don't do this. My <laughs> response is, but you die from exposure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> You decided you wanted to do a science fiction magazine. You were going to be the editor. You have this love. Why were you, you know how I feel, but why were you compelled to say, okay, I'm going to pay people the going rate? What was your thought process behind that? Well, really the number one goal, there's a couple stated goals of the website, but really there are two main ones. And the first is I want to publish the best hard science fiction out there, right? Because that's what inspires sort of the next generation of science and technological progress is things that get your imagination going, but that are also grounded in reality. So I figured the best way to do that was to support people who write that type of science fiction. And so that's actually the second stated goal is to support people who write good hard science fiction. And 
there is no better way to support people than financially, generally speaking, unless they're already independently wealthy. So so few of us are trust fund babies. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I'm not either. And so there are a lot of motivations that writers have. And I think the intrinsic motivation to write great stuff is the most important Right. piece of motivation. But I think any extra motivation that you can give authors is good. So I figured I'd give all the motivation that I was capable of giving. Mm-hmm. Yep, I completely agree. And you're going to get the best when you pay reasonable rates. So I have a question for you. With all this exposure, it sounds like the opposite problem may be you know, happening of you have more submissions than you know what to do with. How do you decide what's a good fit? Obviously, I don't want you to name names, but have you had to turn people down who weren't a good fit? How do you manage that? It's something that you deal with very, very quickly. Right now, I receive about 250 submissions a month. Oh, holy! Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I can only accept five of those every two months. So that is a very small percentage of acceptance. And so generally speaking, the way I deal with that is I have what I hope is a fairly kind rejection letter that gets sent out. I guess I should back up. I actually, since I'm a software engineer by profession, data scientist now, but mainly a software engineer, I ended up writing a whole tech stack to deal with the submission system, a database and a bunch of storage in S3 that submission emails automatically get piped to. So I go through and I evaluate, I actually evaluate every single story that gets sent. I am not at the point yet where I farm out a lot of that work. I do have a handful of advisors, uh, five individuals that help me determine what stories to select in the end, but I do the first pass through. And so at this point I've read many, I think it's about 700 stories that have been submitted. A lot of nights, it's about half a novel's worth of material that I read. Wow. Well, I guess one thing is for sure, you're certainly (laughs) getting your fix of science fiction. (laughs) Yeah. Although maybe not all of it's what you're looking for. (laughs) Unfortunately, not very much of it is what I'm looking for, Uh. but somebody has to do that evaluation work. So anyway, I have a system where I read through the story initially, and then I mark it either for sure rejected or potentially evaluation material. And those ones that are hard rejected, they get sent the automated email because unfortunately I don't have the time. I barely have the time to read through the stories. I don't have the time to write personalized rejection emails for every single story because I also work full time. And then those ones that I think are good that should be evaluated further. I send those out to my five advisors and then I get the statistics on what they think. And that's what I use to make my final decision. And then if I have time, those stories that are right on the edge, I will send out personalized emails explaining why we decided not to go with those stories. And when you, because, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners we have are either authors or aspiring authors and writers, who owns the copyright to the stories when they're submitted to you and you publish them? Do you then, because you're paying them, own the copyright? What happens with that? Oh, no, we definitely don't buy copyright. Actually, I've been told by several authors that the contract is actually one of the kindest two authors that they've ever seen. We essentially buy first publication rights 
which involves exclusive publication rights for the first six months and then non-exclusive rights for three years thereafter that extend indefinitely unless the author decides after three years to ask us to take down the material. I don't think that will probably ever happen because it's very rare that other publishers ask for exclusive rights after for reprints, essentially. Right. But that's a possibility that I included for in the contract just because I want authors to be able to do what they want with their work. So. Right. And I have to concur, I have done writing for hire like blog writing for hire, as well as, you know, obviously I write for my own business. That is a very generous contract based on my experience as well. It's very generous. So I want to ask a question going back for a minute, because you said you got into the Hacker News. Was it a blog post? So I can imagine a lot of our listeners going, okay, well, that's great, but let's take that back a step. How did that blog post even potentially come to their attention in the first place? You know, you were talking about it was through a news aggregator site that Y Combinator runs. Mm-hmm. But do you submit like a post or how did like come back yes. to the beginning with us for a minute so we know where you started. So if someone wanted to try, there's no guarantee they could replicate what you did. Right. But if they wanted to try, what would be their first step? Where would uh, they start? So the first thing generally to do when you're trying to launch a venture like this, I would recommend is to figure out if there's any interest at all. And for me, that wasn't as big of a deal because I'm not, I wasn't trying to start a true business. This was more of a passion project, but I did end up writing just a quick landing page with a email sign up, and I posted that to Hacker News and I mentioned in that sort of splash page what my goals were, what my stated goals were, which we talked about before. And I said, in a couple months, you'll see a follow-up where we open submissions And actually, that particular one, I think, was not a couple months. We ended up opening submissions very quickly at that point, and people started submitting stories. But that was all it was at the time, was a splash page that said, these are our submission guidelines, here's our email address, and here's our email list, sign up for news. And so we got a decent amount of people on the email list as a couple hundred people on the email list at that point. And then I went back when the first issue was released, and that's when we got the majority of the traffic. And that, I believe, the reason we got a decent amount of attention from that first issue is because I also had that email list with a few hundred people on it that I was able to say, oh, by the way, here's a discussion link on Hacker News. You can go Mm. take a look at that as well. Yep. So at least there was a very small built-in audience for that link, then it was able to garner a little bit more attention. And Hacker News in general looks very similar to Reddit in that you can upvote and downvote Uh, various links and the links float to the top. And then even a couple hundred makes a huge difference when you start. I'm not that familiar with Hacker News, but yes, I know Reddit. So, (laughs) (laughs) And probably a good chunk of our audience does, but they may not. So that's another place where you can have discussions, share news. There's all these subreddits that allow for specialized topics. Yes. So in case you haven't, it's R-E-D-D-I-T, so you can check that out as well. When did Patreon, because that's how I found you, Patreon. So I'm mm-hmm. a patron, and for those of you who don't know, Patreon is a website. It's a crowdfunding site with a twist. It allows you to, in essence, be for a small sum of money, often as little as a dollar, 
you can be a patron for someone who's doing some sort of, let's say, art or music or writing. In this case, the science fiction magazine. I'm a patron of a couple artists out there, two writers, an artist, and someone who's kind of in the middle of all that. Amanda Palmer is probably the single biggest success story on Patreon, and her pledges equal 30 plus thousand per thing, per item, which she usually does at least one per month. But it's great for all different sizes. That's how I found you. You know, okay. I, don't, I didn't read Hacker. I was on Patreon going, it's kind of addictive once you start sponsoring people. It's <laughs> a lot of fun because <laughs> yeah. you feel like you're, I can't do all the things these other people do, like you said about being a magazine editor. You know, you maybe you're not the writer, but you can be the editor and bring the writing to people. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about Patreon is I can find people who I really want to help them succeed and get something in return. I found you that way. What made you decide Patreon was the right way to to bring in some revenue for the magazine? Well, there was a couple of reasons. So the initial thought that I had was if people are going to donate to the magazine, if I was going to make it free and essentially run exclusively on donations, I didn't want to get into a situation where people would donate one time and feel like their duty was discharged and (laughs) never donate again, right? Right. No, it's, it's spot on. Yes. And so I definitely didn't want to charge because one of the goals is to get more people reading hard science fiction and putting a paywall up would drastically limit the amount of people who actually discover and sort of organically fall in love with that type of writing. So I thought to myself, I need any donations that I get. I want to be recurring. And and then the second part was I don't really have time to write the software to do that myself. And I've seen Patreon around and they don't charge an exorbitant amount of money. The fees that they charge are not huge. I think it's somewhere around 10% all in. But that was a very quick and easy way to start accepting some donations. Those were my two reasons. Hmm. And I would add that it gets you in front of people like me. I probably wouldn't have found you otherwise. Yeah, that actually surprises me. I wasn't aware that their content discovery mechanism was that good. I just, you know what? All I did was type in science fiction. (laughs) <laughs> and I can't, I mean, maybe it was that. Sometimes it gives me prompts for things I'm like, because uh, I have very eclectic taste. Uh-huh. So, you know, for me, it was more with my own project with the book and now the podcast. I'm with you. There seems to be a dearth of hard science fiction that when I was writing my book, I was looking at, okay, what could be a scientific reason why this happened? And obviously, yes, it's extrapolation. It's in the future. It's in a different universe. I mean, there aren't really sentient plants, right? But there is a scientist that I found. I'm hoping to get him on the show. He's a university professor who has studied plants actually can communicate. Yeah. There are plants who can communicate. So, you know, I looked for things like that where you said, well, what if in a different place or even here thousands of years in the future, that was allowed to really grow and become something? Mm-hmm. And I see that I have a daughter. I see it with her. She goes to these camps like camp invention or innovation or whatever it's called. And, you know, she's seven, but they encourage them to imagine what might be, Yeah. you know, and give them some basic tools. So to me, there's this amazing crossover between science fiction and creating innovative ideas in business. Yeah, no, I would agree. So the Patreon, I think, is a great one. I want to circle back now because 
I had not heard of, and I'm a big, I have tons of science fiction books. Mm -hmm. So does my dad. It's like a family thing. He reads them. He's retired, so he reads a lot. But I have Mm -hmm. not read A Deepness in the Sky. And you said that is your favorite book. So maybe spend a minute telling people what is the book and why is it your favorite? Yeah, so A Deepness in the Sky is a book by Werner Vinge. He's written a couple books that I really enjoy. A Deepness in the Sky was one of them. A Fire Upon the Deep, he also wrote. The reason I like that book so much is... It's very deep and complex, but it doesn't ever rely on any kind of hand-wavy fantasy concepts. As a software person, I guess I should back up and say that the book follows a group of interstellar traders, and they are limited by the speed of light, and because of that limitation, it brings up a whole new sort of economic system, because when you're going at a large fraction of the speed of light, right, you get... Mm -hmm time dilation. And so the time on the spaceships is passing differently from the time on the planets that they go and trade with. And so lots of interesting side effects then crop up from that system. And then there's a whole nother storyline about this biological organism that inhabits people's brains and gets genetically engineered. And there's a society that uses that to control people to bring people greater focus in their tasks, like sort of like, I guess, riddling on steroids or something like this. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so there's quite a few interesting detailed storylines in that book. All of them appeal to my engineer brain. And I guess that's the reason why that I marked down that book as my favorite. Although I have to say that there are many other close contenders. A lot of people familiar with science fiction will know the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Isimov. Yes. It's another one of my my favorites. favorites. (laughs) (laughs) I think anyone who's kind of more of the the science fiction, really, I mean, Asimov, Heinlein, who is also a physicist, you know, that not all of Heinlein, some of it, some of it's a bit pretty. (laughs) I don't know what the right word is. (laughs) (laughs) So have you read, I believe it was Jack Campbell, right, who writes about, because he talks a lot about the time dilation is it, and then when they travel, how they come back, and it's like 25 years later. Wasn't it Jack Campbell that does, or is it? So I'm not actually familiar with any of his work. I've heard of it a lot, but I never have taken the time to sit down and read any of it. So that's on my list, but I can't actually talk about it. <laughs> well, that's okay. If I'm remembering correctly, and in the show notes, I'll be sure to have a link I will research and have a link in the show notes because that was something that really fascinated me was this, the dynamic of going and coming back. And for you, it's been a couple of years. And for the people on earth, it had been like 50, mm-hmm. right? So as you say, it was this other layer in the book that made it very, or books, it's a whole series. Mm-hmm. And that was something when I was writing, I did a lot of reading about wormholes uh-huh. and black holes and folding of space, because as much as I love Star Wars and Star Trek, and I do, Mm-hmm. You know, the science does not support faster than the speed of light travel. Right. So the only other option would be if you want to get around the galaxy in a reasonable time frame, which I wanted for my book, was, okay, is there something else? And so there's this book called Black Holes, Wormholes, and Time Machines by Jim Al-Khalili. And I could be saying that wrong, but I will put the link in show notes. And he talks about there is that other potential that physics does support the possibility a folding space. So similar to like Stargate, having a gate to fold space yeah, versus and, faster than speed of light. 
And I think actually that's something that they, I mean, in Star Trek, when they talk about warp speed, they're referring to warping of space time. Ah. So that concept does exist in that universe. It's not very explicit, though. Right, right. There's a lot of being a big Trekkie. There's a lot of debate about <laughs> okay. that. So, you know, what are they really doing and all that? I'm, I'm I mean, not I, I'm a huge Trekkie, so. <laughs> oh, well, I gr- that was my growing up. We watched the original Star Trek on TV. It was reruns, but still. And, you know, I was around during the original Star okay. Wars. So those were my introduction you know, then reading Asimov and Heinlein and, you know, all that. So, well, Joe, I could talk to you for hours. We are at the end of our show. I want to remind everyone really quickly where you can find Joe and support this magazine, because I have been reading them. We didn't even get into it, but he's picked, as you've heard, has had numerous submissions and the stories are wonderful. They're really interesting and inspiring. Some are short, some are long. They're not all the same. You have a nice mix of styles with the writers. And you can find him at compellingsciencefiction.com as well as Patreon and it's forward slash compelling or just search for science fiction on Patreon. And I think you are in the top three or five that came up when That's I did good to that. hear. And we will put that, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So, Joe, anything else you want to add or any last message for our audience today? No, I think you covered it pretty well and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about this, and I appreciate all the kind words. Well, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure both speaking with you, and again, I encourage you guys to go out and support this new magazine. I'm loving it. I think you will find it will inspire your mind to look in different ways, even if your business has nothing to do with science fiction. Creating and stretching your mind in new ways helps you be successful, even in a field that has nothing to do with science fiction, which look at flip phones, because I always love to come back to that flip phones and the original Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) So Joe, thank you so much for everyone listening. You can keep the adventure going all week, every week between our podcasts at scifibiz.com, scifibiz.com. I'm Nicole Fendi. This is the Prosperity Dimension, the place where science fiction, small business, and profit collide. What? <laughs>